Welcome to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ, hosted by Personal Responsibility Recovery. Join the conversation. Call or text now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's your host, Mark Myers. And good afternoon, and we appreciate everybody joining us today for the Recovery Hour. It's uh, 12.06 today. A little bit hot, maybe, so hopefully everybody's staying a little bit warm. We, uh, of course, here at KLBJ News Radio. If you want to join our conversation today, 512-836-0590. Personal Responsibility Recovery. We're a small 12-bed uh, clinical in nature, residential treatment center for substance use disorder and uh, addiction, alcoholism. And, you know, as an industry, our commitment to that is we just have to do better. Uh, we want to destigmatize uh, conversations about the leading cause of death. In the 18 to 45 year old range is uh, accidental overdose for opioid and add to that several thousand more for alcohol and other drugs. And it's, it's just it's an out of control and it's to me, unbelievable that uh, we kind of don't talk, you know, maybe not just talk, scream from the rooftops uh, about substance use disorder. We need to normalize conversations. We need to uh, we need to destigmatize this thing. We need to demystify it even. And, uh, you know, Dr. Kirby Stewart normally does our hosting on here, and uh, he is on vacation. Uh, our medical director, William Loving, another amazing gentleman, uh, is not with us today. So they've kind of made the mistake of leaving me in charge with this. And, uh, you know, I'm a recovering addict of many, many years. And uh, I've invited a a friend of mine and a friend of our program, Chris Gates. And uh, Chris is also long-term recovery. So the the adults have kind of left the building today. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Chris and I want to talk very realistic, uh, real conversations about addiction, real conversations about recovery. And do it from an addict's standpoint. And, uh, you know, our our hope is anyone out there, Chris, you were giving us, and, and first, good morning, Chris, or good afternoon, Chris. I appreciate you you taking some time to to join us today, man. I, I know our curriculum is based on your approach to uh, the 12 steps, and you have done so much work in this community with Austin Recovery and several other organizations that... Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here, man. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. And you can call it good morning. That's fine with me. You know, I'm, I'm a night person. You know, I was a musician, I understand. musician most of my life, you know. I, I love Ray, Ray Wiley Hubbard says there are two kinds of people in the world, the day people and the night people. And it's the night people's job to get the day people's money. And That makes sense. <laughs> I'm a night person at heart, but I've learned to get up earlier. So. Absolutely. And, you know, we were talking earlier and... and we always talk before the before the show starts out, and it just stuns me because you're you're aware of these numbers too, and and you were you were giving some numbers twenty twenty something million Americans in in active addiction active addiction at any given time you know currently twenty three twenty five million in active addiction and only about two point five million get to access any form of treatment in any given year, and then also the other thing we're talking about is that. There's also about 60 million people in mild or moderate substance use disorder. Most of them won't ever become severe substance use disorder. They won't ever need inpatient treatment or something, but they're, they're a good on that percentage, spectrum as well. Yeah, a good so. percentage will, 
and and it seems like addictions being such a a they say a cunning baffling disease the progression of illness is often something that happens as well once you become that in that severe it's not going anywhere it's not going away right. it's not going to get better on its own and you know in the in the recovery community, they say it's cunning and baffling because it's left to the person with the disease to figure out. Like, <laughs> it's not cunning and baffling from the outside, from a medical it's perspective. It's really not. The, it's a disease. The treatment is because it has to, because there are so many variables. Because it's not just substance use. The substances are just a symptom of the illness. And it's mental, it's physical, it's spiritual. It's all got to be dealt with. But yeah, from the inside, it's very confusing. <laughs> that has been my experience, and and I think that's sometimes what what is so hard for someone faced with when when you're left to your own devices, you just don't know where to start because, like you said, it is a spiritual, emotional, physical. Uh, you're just bankrupt on all of those um, when you seek recovery uh, often. And happily, we have seen progress culturally. I mean, when I was when I was trying to, when I was scraping bottom and dying from my addiction and trying to f- figure out what to do about it, recovery, treatment, all of that was completely off the radar. I didn't know anybody that had gotten sober. I didn't know anybody that had been to treatment. And I always back up and say, I knew four or five people. I just didn't know that's where they had gone. <laughs> <laughs> Usually if you disappeared out of my circle at that point in time, it meant you're either in jail or you died or, you know. Or I, had yeah. enough of you. Yeah, I just, I <laughs> understand. <laughs> Later, after I got sober, I, I ran into him and, oh, there, that's what happened to you. Yeah, but, you find them in the same rooms. It just wasn't part of the world. It wasn't part of the discussion ever. And and now it's it's a little bit more... It's coming up, and and I think the first time that someone actually identified me, someone said, you are an addict, was my first day of treatment. I had no clue prior to that. Now, that was back in 1985, and we didn't, as you said, the the infrastructure, whatever it was, it, it has come a long way, but it's still... You know, Uncle whatever or yourself, it, it, you don't talk about this. Don't talk about this at school. Don't say dad's doing this. Don't say my kid's doing that. It's uh, it's still such a shame-based disorder. It's, it's like the only disease that comes with shame and guilt for the victim and victim's families. It's mind-boggling. To yeah, me. and, you know, when I was using, I would be glad to tell you that I was an addict once I figured it out and it, it wasn't a problem anymore. But while I was trying to figure it out, it was it was humiliating. And, and I, you know, I'm not different than most people. Like, most things I put my mind to, I'm able to sort of figure out and make work. But I couldn't figure this out to save my life. No. And it, literally to save my life. And, it, you know, I didn't want to use, you know, it wasn't recreational drug use. It was vocational drug use. It was, it, it, it was like, you know. To survive. Right. Do you, do you want to breathe? Yes. Do you want to not kill yourself? Yes. Okay, then we're going to need to be high today. And and uh, and sadly, just, that's where it gets for those so so many people. And, and uh, recovery is available, though. It, and that's, it is there. And that's the thing. It's like it's a lot more part of the conversation. But that being said, because there's still stigma attached to it, because and because honestly, because. It's not a linear path, and people come in and go out, come in and go out, and it takes a few years typically to get your. Sometimes it does. Uh, families don't want to talk about it, and so you don't know that you know. 
oh, Uncle Bob's been sober 14 years, but he never mentioned it. So. People don't mention that they're in recovery, and I know there's some traditions and things that go along that. Um, you know, we're, we're already coming up on our first break, which is always amazing to me. I, I, I swear we're going to make this a two-hour show one of these days. Um, 512-836-0590 on News Radio. I uh, would love for you to join the conversation, uh, call or text, and we will be right back with Chris Gates and personal responsibility right after this break and uh, continue this conversation. Like what you hear? Make sure you never miss a show every Sunday at noon. Go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more. Now, back to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ with Mark Myers. And we're back. And again, if you, uh, Personal Responsibility Recovery is bringing you the recovery hour. Uh, if you want to join our conversation, 512-836-0590. Uh, have Chris Gates in the studio with us today. Just uh, an amazing person, part of the uh, recovery community in Austin is kind of the way we see that or say that. Um, been involved with a lot of treatment centers with Austin Recovery. Um has done a lot of a, a tremendous work for us and just kind of sharing a little bit about recovery today. And, and we've got a call in that I'm going to go to here. And hi, this is uh, Mark. You're on the recovery hour uh, at KLBJ. How can we help? Hey, hi, hi there, Mark. My name's Eric. I just wanted to um, spread the word that, you know, that, it, that uh, recovery is possible. I'm, I'm, Ten years, a little over ten years sober now, and you know I, I've come from being a you know a daily drunk um, for uh, I'm you know uh, I laugh about it now because I got pulled over on their way to rehab one time. It was a uh, it was um, <laughs> that's, that's, it was a uh, I can awesome. laugh about it now, but but signing to get out of jail, my hand was so shaky I could barely write my name. I mean it was pretty bad. But now you know I've got a successful business. I'm I'm married. I mean, life is picture perfect, as, as they say. You know, I'm happy, joyous, and free because I've I've gone through. I've, I worked the twelve steps, and it's, it's the principles I've learned have really been a foundation for living a a good way of living. You know, it okay, really so. is, Eric, and we certainly appreciate you calling in and and checking in and and sharing that experience, strength, and hope because that is really truly what this is all about. Eric, thanks, man. Have a blessed weekend. And I, I love what he's saying, and I love that he's talking about being 10 years sober. Because like we were talking about before we got in here, um, everybody has a pretty good idea of what an addict looks like. They you do. Know, you see them under the bridge. You see them. Like, people know you say addict or alcoholic. People immediately have a mental image. They have a visual of what that looks like. But nobody knows what a person in recovery looks like because they just look like a person. <laughs> you know, they're they're living great lives and they're having a good time. And if you, but if you rewound a year or five years or ten years or twenty four years, years. thirty eight years, yeah. and saw where we started, it would. It's not recognizable, right? And it's and it's it's a missing component to to understanding both how the disease affects people, but what's possible with the right support and, and treatment. You know, they, there's a, a thing where we call that the imposter's life. And it's, uh, if, if there's people I sponsor and I, I tell them, you know, if you, if you, if you were to write down everything that you thought your life was going to be like in 10 years by doing this program, you would miss it so far. It's I mean, unreal. When I was in, when I was in treatment, the counselor 
made us all write down what we wanted our life to look like in a year and then tuck it into the book they gave us. And like, and I thought it was a stupid exercise, but I wrote some stuff down. And, <laughs> and then a year later, I was still sober and I ran across it and I looked at it. And my impression of the list was half of it came true in the first 90 days and the other half, I was just trying to impress people. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> like, I didn't even want any of that stuff anymore. I was like, oh, yeah. You know, the, the gifts that I have had are things like, I'm coming up on 33 years of marriage this year uh, to the same person and uh, just just an incredible relationship. I have a 30-year-old daughter that's never seen me under the influence. I have a grandson that, that will never see me under the influence. Those are the real things. I've, I, you know, I have been able to function in life and carry the message to the addict who still suffers. And that's, that's one of the, the most important things to me is like I always tell people I did not get sober to be sober. No. I didn't get clean to be clean. I got clean and sober to have a big, cool life. And happily, the tools that I needed to develop to build enough spiritual health to stay sober also allowed me to build a big, cool life. Because, yeah, I'm 24-plus years into my recovery. I've been married for 17 years to a woman, and I've never had a serious argument with her, not one. We're married to patient women, apparently. Well, you know, I always tell my wife that her, <laughs> the two qualities she had that I liked most was bad eyesight and poor judge of character. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I but, totally understand. And, and congratulations. Uh, my wife's name is Joe, and today is 32 years of continuous sobriety for her. Wow. Today is that, her, her recovery that, And that, the shout-outs for things like that are just unbelievable. We've and, got a caller here that wants to comment on the uh, stigma, uh, I'm sorry, the stigma of addiction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that. I, uh, good afternoon. This is Mark. You are on the air with us on the Recovery Hour. Um, how can we help? Um, this is Debbie. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Yes, we can. Great. Well, at this point in my recovery and in my life in general, just about everybody knows that I'm in recovery. Professionally, um, eventually, all of my bosses know, and all of them have a copy of To the Employer. I feel it's really, really important, especially if you don't exhibit any of the behaviors of an active alcoholic because you are recovered, from the seemingly hopelessness that people know because they run into other people who need need help. And if they don't know, how can they get help? So I think that's really, really important. And that's a, and, um, a huge part of what this show is, is destigmatizing addiction. Because I work with people, and I know Chris does, that, that you would see me on the street and you see a 63-year-old fat man with gray hair that looks like the most square peg there is. Yeah. And you've no idea. <laughs> I think I think part of the reason I've been able to help a lot of people is because I didn't clean up that good. But, uh, <laughs> but it well, is. like I'm a big fan of being able to identify as a person in long-term recovery. Like I absolutely. understand the anonymity piece. There are definitely careers out there where it's a bad idea for anybody to know that you're in recovery. You know, but... Uh, but in general, well, on, my, on my first application, when I was just raw in the first few months, my sponsor said, you, you know, you've got to be honest. So when they asked that question, you know, about alcoholism, just leave a blank. 
or put some more information, you know. And bring and, it up um, then. Absolutely. And, and they, you know, they're going to know something's going on. And if they want me based on the other stuff, and if not, it's not a good fit. And um, that's worked out beautifully. Now they're like, you know, in the last five years. And I'm like, well, heck, you know, 28. So Exactly. You know, I, I can say, no, I'm not being treated in that way. And I don't feel any problem there. But, of course, it's, I, you know, I just came from an open discussion, you know, well. uh, with my fellows. And, you know, I, you we know, sure appreciate it is. We sure appreciate the phone call and, and thank you so much for uh, for being in recovery and doing what you do to continue that because it's uh, it's something that as a group, as a, as a society, we just have to keep going. So thank you so much. We appreciate the call. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really important. Like, I don't have to scream it from the rooftops. I don't have to be a, go on, you know, public tours announcing my recovery, you know, like we were joking earlier, most of my life is a matter of public record. So knowing I'm so <laughs> easy to find best, best thing anybody <laughs> could know, but, but people need to know that I'm a person in long-term recovery because if their spouse or their daughter or somebody starts having a problem, they'll go, Oh, Chris is in long-term recovery. I can call him and ask what to do. And, and I can tell him. And everybody, like, people think they don't have any resources, but if you've been sober for any length of time at all, you know people, and you know people who know people, and you're a, you're a doorway to what's possible. You become have, the resource. Right, people have no idea until they need it. And it amazes me the people who have no idea. The, the, you know, I've, I've worked in professional settings for a long time, and, and people, I, they always know I'm in recovery. And people really educated, people, family people that come up and say, hey, I've got a son, I've got a daughter, I've got a spouse. I have no idea what to do. How do I get this person help? And by me being open about my recovery, they do have someone where to go. They know where to go. And that's, uh, that's, that's been over and over and over part of my story over the, over the last several years. Uh, to the point that, you know, we opened a treatment center. <laughs> and uh, we are not, and, and we'll probably get into this in the next segment, but, you know, we are not driven by the insurance industry. We are not driven by uh, certain things that, that establish this business where I believe there's a lot of room for improvement, oh, yeah. um, a lot of room for improvement in the treatment industry. And Yeah, I mean, addiction is treated as a chronic illness. I mean, it as is. an acute illness. An acute illness. You know, it's, it's, you don't get medical attention until things are so bad you may be dying. Yes. You know, and if you walk into an emergency room, uh, borderline in a diabetic coma because you ate a ton of pie, the first thing they do is put you in a, in a bed in the ICU and give you what you need to get you healthy again. But if you walk in near death as an addict and ask for help, they put you on the street. They do. And, and it's, that's the change that has to be made. The uh, medical stabilization with no sense as to what will happen three days after that medical stabilization. If you even get the medical stabilization. Uh, yeah. You know. Exactly. And, yeah. So it is a, uh, as we say, it's an industry that we have to do better in. And, and you know, if, if we're coming up on another break here for the news, but we always want people to know personalresponsibilityrecovery.com. That's a resource. That's a huge resource. 
we are a small clinical 12-bed residential treatment center. The biggest reason we do this show is to destigmatize, to act as a resource for the community. Use that website, contact us, ask us questions, ask us resources. We are fairly well plugged in to the treatment communities, to the resources, to the state funded, to you know what's what's there for Medicare, what's there for Medicaid, and just a a voice that allows you to maybe start making some preparations. Making a decision in crisis, I, I, that's always a bad decision for me, but that's, that's sometimes, that's when I want to find things out. Okay, I'm in crisis, uh, so-and-so's on the floor, what do I do? I Google the guy with the biggest ad is who I'm going to call first, and that may or may not be... Just means he has a marketing budget, not a, a successful treatment center. That's kind of what I think. Yeah. But it's... There needs to be a plan up front, and we talked about that some last week, and it's... Uh, there needs to be a plan. I don't know a, a better way to say that. And some of that is just research. Some of it is working on the, um, some of it is just knowledge, I guess is what the word I'm looking for. Educate yourself. There's so many people who are affected by this that it doesn't have to go into crisis before planning starts. Because if you're at a point of thinking about those things, it's probably going to go into crisis. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes after a news break. 512-836-0590. Like what you hear? Make sure you never miss a show every Sunday at noon. Go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more. Now, back to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ with Mark Myers. And we are back. And for those just joining us, the recovery hour. Uh, you know, we want to we want to destigmatize. We want to uh, normalize discussions about substance use disorder, alcohol, and uh, other substance use addiction. Uh, join our conversation five one two eight three six zero five ninety. You can call or text that number. Uh, in the studio today is is Chris Gates, who. Uh, he and I both have Austin Recovery in our background. I was fortunate enough to be on their board for several years, and, and Chris also involved with Austin Recovery after that, and, uh, you know, a phenomenal organization. And we were just talking on break. They're not there anymore. And uh, COVID kind of kind of put them out of business. And uh, of all the funding, everything that we do for homeless populations, for all of the things that happen in Austin – they don't set aside anything for direct treatment of addiction. And right. uh, I, I wish they did. Inpatient treatment is expensive. It is. Uh, in, integral care did not want to spend any of the money they had in the bank on inpatient treatment. Um, yeah. Also, you know, really, the world shifted when Obamacare happened and they passed the Parity Act, which said insurance companies have to put just as much money into behavioral health as they do physical health. And that pumped a ton of money into the treatment space. It did. Yeah. And in 2008, there were like four treatment centers in the Austin area, um, and Austin Recovery was sort of the peak. And for every one indigent client, there were four with good insurance to help underwrite the fact that the grants don't pay enough. By 2012, there were nine treatment centers. Now there's like 30 treatment centers. And uh, for every one person with insurance, there were four who were indigent, and we were having to fundraise a million and a half dollars a year. And just couldn't do that. In it becomes a way, yeah, that it just that it just doesn't work. And you know, the treatment centers there's there are a ton. And if you've got great insurance, that is fabulous. Um, there's some great great treatment centers out there. 
But there's also the people who have been, and and this is where, I, I won't call it a soapbox, but Chris, I think you're on the same page here a little bit. Those treatment centers check boxes a lot of times, and they may not be checking the best box for the individual addict, but they're checking the box that the insurance company covers. Right. It's, you know, it's, I understand, and there's a lot of, there are a number of bad actors in the in the space, but in general, most of them are trying absolutely to do the, the very absolutely. best they can. Unfortunately, how you get paid is billing for certain services that the insurance will pay for. Exactly, and and uh, and you know, some treatment centers are phenomenal at getting things checking the boxes that need to be checked and still providing individualized still, care, which is ha- and, half so important. And you know, everybody's trying. But it's like insurance won't pay for some of the things that are the most important parts. And, you know, like insurance won't pay for sober living, full stop. They will not. And so, and that's a shame because it's a chronic illness and you should probably have covered support. Paying for sober living for a year would probably put at least two out of ten not back in rehab in that year. Exactly. And so it would be much cheaper to pay for a peer coach and sober living, but the insurance companies have not figured that out yet. They haven't figured it out yet. And, you know, it, it's just a whole bunch of moving parts. That's the reality is it's a whole bunch of moving parts. And it's, uh, you know, if, if this was cardiothoracic surgery and eight out of ten people died after their cardiothoracic surgery, we'd probably figure something out really, really fast. Well, and the, the thing but that, it's addiction. Yeah, the thing that people have to understand about addiction is it's really fundamentally no different from other chronic illnesses. Exactly. St- statistically, like the number of people who relapse from their treatment plan and, and have a recurrence of symptoms between people who are sub- or working trying to get better from substance use disorder and people with asthma and people with diabetes and people with high blood pressure, the numbers are almost identical. I've never thought of it that way. No, I've done the research. The numbers are almost identical. Also, just like in other chronic illnesses, like if I, t- if I took a room full of people and waved a magic wand and all 10 of them were now diabetic. I would be pissed at you. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'd want to know how if I, if I could wave the wand and do the other because I'd be so rich. But, uh, but so t- I've got 10 people that I've just told that they're diabetic. And I've told to th- them what they need to do about managing their, their disease. Three of them would listen, or four of them would listen, and they would do their best over the next six months or a year to find a way to manage that condition, and largely for the rest of the life, that condition would remain managed, and they wouldn't have very many recurrence of symptoms. Another three or four would pretend they hadn't heard me, and they'd just keep eating whatever they wanted, and they'd die 10 years early missing a foot and blind. That would be me. And the, and the five or six in the middle would spend some indeterminate number, usually somewhere between three and six or seven years, gradually come to, coming to terms and learning to manage their disease. And the numbers with addiction are almost identical. It's just much more ugly and much more life-threatening and much more public. And there's a stigma attached to it. Big stigma attached to it. And, and so, like, it's because addiction is not a one-and-done, because statistically five years and three or four treatment episodes before you find the sustained recovery. Statistically, those are the numbers. Most of the guests that come through, clients that come through us, um, have been in treatment five, six, seven. Our, our sitting 
champion at the moment is 23 treatment centers. Oh, yeah. The, when I was in rehab, there was a guy who was there for his 32nd visit. It was like half a million dollars for a big book, you know. And uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, bless his heart, he had a lot of resources, <laughs> you know. And uh, I only went once because I was on a charity bed, and I was under the misconception that they wouldn't pay a second time. So I got really dug in, <laughs> you know. But, but it's, you know... I, I did all my relapsing before I got there, but but it really is. It's like you ha- people have to understand that it's a process, and it that is. stability does come typically. Sti- you know, and I've I have coached families, and you know, with insanely codependent parents, and I I remember sitting down and telling them, "Look, I believe your son or daughter is going to find sustained recovery." Absolutely. But I was thirty-seven. And, and also, most people begin to find sustained recovery between 34 and 37 years old. But your kid's 24. And can you keep living how you're living for 13 more years? And that tends, tends to get their attention. Well, <laughs> and, and my recovery date is a long time ago. I was 25 years old. And I think for everybody we talk about that, you know, we have to hit a bottom. We have to hit a bottom that is our bottom. For me, it was a career that was incredibly promising at a very young age that was gone. Uh, Relationships gone, friendships gone, family done. And being homeless in my truck, um, I was ready. And and that was my bottom. That's, That's my truth, as they say. And, you know, the whole bottom idea, like, I get it, but, but the, the equation we're working with today does not allow for that. Because not today, and 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 the the kids who are who are hitting the front door at treatment centers between seventeen and twenty six or twenty seven years old, they are not like I was. No, and uh, they've grown up in a world that's caused them to be very fragile, and 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 they're really really struggling, and they may well die because of the drugs that are on the street, and and we have to find a way, and it's part of this the destigmatization, and also showing people all the time what a life in recovery can look like. Because, Amazing. Because bottom, it's not an external circumstance that causes me to change. It's a moment of clarity where something inside me breaks and I realize, like, I'm not going to figure this out and I have to find some help or I'm going to die. But if in that moment of clarity, of willingness, the slight bit of ego deflation that, that creates a, an opening, if in that moment... I'm not presented with a workable plan, with a, with something that looks attractive and worth working towards, the moment passes. And then it can be months before that moment is there again. Yeah, and, and in today's world, that's a scary place. Right. Once again, it's like, it's really important that people who are having successful lives in recovery, wherever possible, like probably not a good idea to aver- advertise that you're a recovering addict if you're a surgeon. You know, Probably not. You know. Uh, <laughs> But but if it's possible, at least in your small circle, in a larger circle, in whatever way that makes sense and is comfortable in your life, letting people know and and sh- not harping, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, this newly discovered, the new people in AA who just never stopped talking about AA, but like, but letting people know that you're a person in long-term recovery and what's possible so that in that moment, when they're willing... They know who to reach to. I hear people in in 12-step rooms all the time say, well, I guess she just wasn't ready. It's like, he he was ready. For a moment. But somehow or another, when he was ready, he wasn't shown something that gave him hope. Yeah. You know, it's as often as not, it's that's the prey. 
Well, that's a piece of it, at least. And know? and again, it's it's just doing our part here to destigmatize addiction, to normalize conversations about it. We are up against another break here. We're going to come into the last segment of the show in a moment. And if anybody would like to join us, uh, 512-836-0590 on News Radio 590. Uh, Chris Gates in the studio with us today, just an, uh, an amazing person and part of our uh, our recovery. And one hell of a musician, too, from what I understand. Uh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> Again, my name's Mark Myers with Personal Responsibility Recovery. Uh, PersonalResponsibilityRecovery.com. Please use this as a resource. There is so much resources and information available. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Providing professional opinions, resources, and guidance for addiction treatment every Sunday from noon to one. The Recovery Hour with Mark Myers. And we're back for our little final segment here uh, on the Recovery Hour. Uh, if you want to join us, 512 836 uh, Mark Myers with uh, Personal Responsibility Recovery, and of course Chris Gates, the superstar of recovery, uh, in the uh, in the studio with us today. Very fortunate to have him. Got a call here, um, comment about how family members can help. Uh, hi, I'm Mark. This is uh, the Recovery Hour. You're on the air with us. How can we help? Thank you very much. Um, I have a a question about uh, family members. Uh, helping someone that definitely has an addiction and really quick because I know we're uh, limited for time since you're about done but um, I um, experienced uh, caring for my brother who died of um, alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver and saw uh, what it did to him in his last month and now I have another family member who is an an actual miracle liver transplant um, uh, patient. And I am seeing the abdomen swelling of ascites, the jaundice in, in their eyes and skin, and they live in another state and live by themselves. And I am absolutely... Um, I'm riddled with guilt and not, I feel like I need to, to do something or say something because I know the path that they are on and the possible finality of their addiction and that sort of thing. And I just wanted from y'all's expertise some way to um, maybe start the process because I know I can't, my, I personally cannot change their behaviors but i feel like i need to do something because i see it yeah that's and a tough spot so that's a anyway. really a really tough spot and if if it's okay we're going to respond to that um so i know that uh for an family member or someone who does not want help getting help is just almost impossible but i mm -hmm. know that a planned intervention and there's some really talented interventionists um, around and that it, it, this is a medical issue so it is way above my pay grade um, oh, okay. dr. Kirby <laughs> is is not here but I do know that a planned intervention someone who's in active recovery uh, or I'm sorry someone that needs to be in recovery um, mm -hmm. an interventionist might be the best way to get that person in recovery right it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a challenging situation because a Help that's not requested isn't help. 
mm-hmm. and he's not asking for help. Mm-hmm. That being said, one of the and I, I agree with Mark, an intervention may be a good way to go. I would suggest what I tell people in this situation is, look, you can make one reach. You can call and ask them if it's okay if you talk to them for a minute about what you see and that letting mm-hmm. them know that you would like to help. But you can only do that once. And, and if they don't want to talk to you about it, if they get angry about it, whatever, they're telling you where they are. And an intervention, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you might proceed with it, but it may or may not work. There but. are some really talented interventionists, and I know we're coming up on a clock here. And what I'm going to encourage mm-hmm. you to do is reach out. Uh, just just go to our website, personalresponsibilityrecovery.com. Yep. Hit the contact page and okay. just briefly, uh, please recommend interventionist help for family member that may not want help and uh, we'll consult with Dr. Kirby, Dr. Loving both and uh, there's a, an interventionist out in the world named Rich Whitman and uh, mm-hmm. Rich is, is just about as good as they get on that and uh, we'll get you all of that information um, that we can forward all of that to you, not on the air but get as many resources as we can for you on something like that and I hope that oh. helps. Oh, this is perfect, and this could not be more uh, uh, timely. And it's 1 o'clock, guys, so have a wonderful weekend. It's pretty close. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, bye-bye. Take care. And, you know, that is so hard when a family member does not want help. That's, uh, yeah, that was me for a a long, long time. And I think it's uh, Dr. Masters, Matt Masters, a friend of our programs also. He says, you know, addiction is, uh, it's just, its main symptom is denial. Just it, its main symptom is denial, followed by dishonesty and stealing and <laughs> manipulation. And, and those are the things that cause so much stigma around the disease. And in my take on it, it's a little different because it's not denial unless I know the truth. And, uh, well, and, good point. And so I'm not being obstinate. You know, it's like just the whole just say no thing was laughable. And now I know why. Because as an addict, you may as well be saying just don't breathe. Because when I try to not drink and not use and I don't have another solution for the problem that I'm drinking and using trying to fix, it's like you're holding my head underwater. And I start getting panicky and I don't know what to do. And I know the disaster that's going to happen if I use or I drink again, but I, I don't have another choice. And, and then, you know, and I don't mean to steal and I don't mean to be dishonest and I don't mean to burn my whole life down, but I have to breathe. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a desperate terrible, soul-destroying. Every addict I know has been, had their soul crushed by the complete inability to be the person they want to be. Our friend Dr. Kirby Stewart often says that the consequences, until they outweigh the rewards, we don't have anywhere to go. And I think for so long, the consequences do outweigh the rewards, but we just don't know what else to do. Right. We, and we, so we, we keep haven't, living haven't presented them. with options, and we, and we don't know what's possible. And those are the things that this show is geared to bring out. What are the options? And, and you know, there is treatment. There is the 12 steps. There's the rooms. There's, there's so many different options that are available to us. And the, the beauty is especially with the internet and stuff like that. It's like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there's a mil- there are a number of different communities out there of people who have wheels that are rolling real good. Absolutely. And maybe you can just get with one of them and let them show you how to build a wheel. And, you know, and find some people 
that are doing something that's working for them and ask them how they do that and then do what they're doing, there's whatever so, that is. There's so many options. And, and, you know, sometimes residential treatment is needed. Oh, 100%. It, 100%. Sometimes it has to have that break. You need the residential treatment. That's, that's what we do, personal responsibility recovery. Dot com. Um, we can we can pump you full of information on that, and and whether or not we're the treatment center for you or not, we have the resources. Sometimes it's an IOP, like Atomic Souls. Our friend Sky Hilton, Rachel Stein, um, they just do amazing work on an outpatient basis. When the the beauty of inpatient treatment is that it's time outside of time. Yes. Like there's no funny colored male coming through the slot. There's nobody getting mad, mad at you. It's like. It's like you get to step outside the world for several weeks where your only real job is to learn the tools you need so you don't have to fall back down that hole. And there's there's medical support. There's therapists that can help you when you lose your mind because you don't have a way to escape anymore. There's a whole support team around you to, to make a space so that you can get the tools together so that when you get out, you can start down the journey. I always tell folks that are in our center that we we everybody coming in is a little bit different flavor of crazy. I can't treat that in 28 days. I can't treat that in 60. I can't treat it in 90. But we can give you a toolbox full of tools, show you how to use all of them, and provide the support that as you go through. Because like you said, a year of sober living is awesome. Depending on the degree, the level of severity of this disease, because it's it's like any other chronic disease, there are levels of severity. If I had stage two cancer, I would go kick in an oncologist's door and beg for help. Well, and the, I just read a really amazing book called The, uh, uh, the Least of Us by a guy named Sam Kenyonis, who wrote a book called Dreamland about the opioid epidemic. And there's a ton of great information about what's going on with the meth that's on the street now. It's a completely Scary different stuff. formula than it was 20 Scary. years ago. And it takes six to nine months typically, to just get out of the psychosis. Like, they're treating people for six to nine months inpatient in a lot of places. And there's an amazing program that does that in Louisiana called Palmetto. Just yeah. just amazing. So it's, it's, it's individualized it's, types of treatment. And just having the knowledge and the basis, people have to know where to start on that. And, uh, you know, Chris, again, man, uh, thank you so much for being out here, sharing your experience, strength, and hope, taking a... Uh, taking a Sunday afternoon to do that with us. If somebody wants to find you, uh, intervention stuff, coaching, recovery, peer coaching, all of those things. Uh, the easiest way to find me is just at bigcoollife.com. Uh, you can, you'll have to excuse the website. It's, you know, I built websites for a living, so it hasn't been updated in a while. <laughs> but uh, that's easy. And I'm super easy to find on social media, you know, either search Big Cool Life or Chris Gates. And yeah, if you have a question, Please feel free to reach out. I love talking about this. And you're also all over YouTube, uh, Mechanics of Spirituality and a, a few different programs. And, you know, I, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, certainly appreciate everybody who called, uh, called in to join us. PersonalResponsibilityRecovery.com. Please use us as a resource. Uh, this disease does not go away on its own. It is a team sport. See you next week.